Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. I'm new to lots of this. I just feel the need to admit that again. I'm new to church leading. I'm new to America. I'm new to church leading in America via an iPhone. And to be very honest, I think that in many ways, bread massively benefits from this certainly in partnership with Ed, who's been doing the whole church leadership thing for over a decade before we moved here. I think his experience and confidence combined with my freshness and openness does in general make a really, really good leadership pairing. Our marriage therapist bank account would certainly testify to that fact. But what's hit me this week is that in order to lead a church, you really have to have faith in the church, not ours specifically. I mean like the whole Jesus bride thing. And I need to confess to you that my faith in the church hasn't been flying so high recently. Why weren't we deafened by pastors and priests and ministers yelling, hang on a flipping minute, when the Bible was used for a publicity stunt like we saw a couple of weeks ago, when the Bible has been used for far worse things in the history of race relations here? I mean... We're used to not agreeing. We're used to living with the reality that Jesus' bride just doesn't see eye to eye with itself on what it should look like, how we should behave, what we should believe in. I think it is probably just the reality that this side of heaven, we're not going to see unity theologically. We're not going to all agree on what it is to preach the truth in love or whether the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is still here on earth or whether I as a woman should even be preaching to any men. Whether a person who doesn't identify as heteronormative should be included in this family at all. Theological division isn't new. The real and damaging pain it causes isn't new. But something about the way that many white evangelical pastors have responded or have failed to respond to what is unravelling racially at the moment has felt new. And maybe it shouldn't have. I'm sure it doesn't feel new to many, many people. But the in, out, us, them, red, blue, tribal mentality of the whole thing its just felt too much at moments this week. And so I'd like to show you a video by a lady called Dr. Anita Phillips, a therapist and minister based in Baltimore. And it's a video that kind of broke me and put me back together a bit this week. 
she can certainly put all of this a lot better than I can. She's talking from 1 Corinthians 12, um, where we jump in. One body with many parts. But then it also goes on to say we are one body with many parts. So we're not going to be able to get only one body, oh, many parts into just one body and never have parts again. That's not what the Bible says. It says many parts, one body, one body, many parts. So I have to be able to be one with you and then still be me and still recognize that you're going to be you. But we also have to be one, but we also have to be parts. That's the hard part. If we just had to all many parts be one body, then we would figure out who had to give up what, and then everybody just had to be one. But this is saying many parts, one body, but then one body still has many parts. Do you guys hear the complication there? That is difficult. That requires us to live in attention. That's tense living. For me to stand here, and this is my brother or sister in Christ, and I'm trying to figure out how we can be one, but then we are also parts. That's tough stuff. And it's not an easy thing to pull off. We're going to have to live in the tension a little bit. We are going to have to hold on to one another in a way that trusts that God is coming. I think about 120 people in an upper room praying together, waiting for what was coming, living in the tension, staying focused, staying in intercession, staying on their knees. That tension is difficult. But what is too often happening is we talk about faith with no supernatural dimension. Faith is more, my Christian faith is more than a moral code. My Christian faith is more than a group of rules to live by. My Christian faith tells me that I can be changed, that something supernatural can happen to us to make us different than we were before. But if we're not willing to hold on to each other through the tension until the Holy Spirit shows up and has a supernatural impact to do what we can't humanly do in this be one, but be parts, but be one, but also be parts. All I can do is hold on to you and you hold on to me and we're waiting for God to show up. Stop leaving the supernatural element out of the equation because we're leaving it out that's how we're getting into this mess painfully challenging stuff i'm sure you will agree hers is a voice that i would highly recommend adding to the ones that you listen to based on what i've already heard anyway and just for the record it's by no means pacifism that she's preaching in the face of injustice she speaks as eloquently as anybody else i've heard in the last few weeks about the depths of the problems for black americans and what needs to happen in order for restoration to meaningfully occur she's also unbelievably insightful as to how our racially informed cultural histories and worldviews play a part in this particularly as it pertains to what we think the gospel means she also says it all dripping with grace and love and a clear knowledge of her need for Jesus. I'd highly recommend following her, Dr. Anita Phillips. The kingdom of God is built on principles that are so different to the one most of the country has heard from the church, truths so wildly, uncomfortably different to the victorious white Western Christianity that so many people know of. We don't win this war the way the world win wars. We don't get to have the quickest comebacks. We don't fight the best fights or vanquish the enemy with our levels of brilliant theology. The truth we're called to is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly. It makes a great t-shirt. It's a flipping painful way to live sometimes. 
Ed spoke last week on justice, mishpat is the word, and it's woven all the way through the Bible, putting things right for mainly four groups of people, the widow, the fatherless or the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor or oppressed, the vulnerable, the ones who suffer first, the ones who need justice most. And as he said last week, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. And as Dr. Anita says, we've got to expect God to show up in power. Looking at the justice problem, looking at the church problem in 2020 is too overwhelming. His presence and his power is the only place the solution lies. And so too it is with the call to love mercy. Mercy is a funny word, isn't it? I don't think we like it because we're culturally drilled to resist any idea that we should need it. I think we use it for strictly only the most benevolent causes, mercy ships and mercy ministries and mercy on those who desperately need it, like the pity and charity and poor them and all their desperate need. In strict definition terms, it denotes a sense of someone um, who is within your power or right to ignore or even punish or harm, but to choose to do otherwise because well, we're just nice like that. This is subtly, but importantly, very different actually to the word used in Micah. Love mercy is translated from a Hebrew, a single Hebrew word, hesed. It means loyal or steadfast loving kindness. It's like sort of marriage vow love, richer, poorer, sickness, health kind of thing. Complete commitment. It's used about 250 times in the Bible and the vast majority of the times it's used is referring to God's love of his people, his generous care, his commitment to them. To love mercy is something quite central to what Jesus came to demonstrate, which we'll see from Matthew chapter 9 as Joe reads for us this morning. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up and take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew are a series of miraculous deeds that clearly hammer this point home about what Mishpat justice is and who Jesus is here to meet. He heals a leper, the demon possessed, a Gentile servant, a bleeding woman, and raises a dead girl, the uncleanest of the unclean. And he's here for all of them. 
And as we know, rattling worldviews is an uncomfortable business. So here in our passage, to put the cherry on top of the outlandish claim that he forgives sins before healing the body of a paralysed man, Jesus sits down at the table of a tax collector, likely with prostitutes and other outcasts. Tax collectors are like the worst. It was the practice in the Roman Empire to appoint tax collectors locally throughout the domain so that they'd know the language, customs and geography. So it wasn't just the fact that they were traitors to their people or the fact that they had a legal tendency to extort their people to the tune of whatever they could get on top of the outrageously high Roman taxes. They also marked themselves as ceremoniously unclean because of their dealings with the Gentiles. Matthew, the tax collector, aka Matthew, the apostle who wrote the book, couldn't really have been a more controversial candidate for Jesus' discipleship. And then there's the table. Table fellowship was a very important social and religious convention in the ancient world. The shared meal was a formal marker of a shared group, and it wasn't just about food. Ritual, practice and tithing made these occasions sacred. Unclean, unwanted sinners, those excluded were Jesus' sacred partners in this. This is not only surprising to the Pharisees, it actually makes him unclean in their eyes. Jesus knows what they're thinking and answers, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They would have been fully aware of the full verse, which was from the minor prophet Hosea, written in the same era as the Micah prophecy that we're exploring, warning Israel of their impending exile. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God instead of burnt offerings. This was written to the kings of Israel who were corrupt and foolish and trying to make deals with foreign powers as a last ditch effort to save themselves. They have turned from God, forgotten his law and are worshipping other idols. They're also exploiting the poor and injustice is rampant. However, they're continuing to make sacrifices and offerings as, as worship to God in the temple, as if following the rules of sacrifice will earn them favour with him. Jesus will quote this same Hosea passage to the Pharisees a short time later in Matthew 12, when they're quibbling over his hungry disciples picking grain to eat on the Sabbath. He says, something greater than the temple is here in this mercy. This command to be merciful is unavoidably prevalent throughout his life, his stories and his teachings. The rich man and Lazarus, the widow and the judge, the unmerciful servant, the two men praying at the temple, the lost son, the lost sheep, the adulterous woman. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. It's start to finish. The life he came here to live, the death he came to die, the message he came to bring. We forgive because we are forgiven. We love because we are loved. We show mercy because we need mercy and we know this. Mercy, steadfast love, is what fulfills the law. This is what we're called to be. The ruler who asked Jesus in Luke's gospel, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is not told, obey your Bible, have a daily quiet time and avoid premarital sex. He says, be merciful. In that story, it's neither of the upright religious men who helped the fallen Jewish man, but the Samaritan, who's not just the lowest of the low and the outcast. He's the enemy. 
in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the king divides his people like a shepherd divides his animals. It isn't those called righteous in that story who are saved. It is those who fed the hungry, gave water to the thirsty, invited the stranger in and clothed the unclothed. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Jesus is unrelenting. It is not your sacrifice I desire, but your mercy. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. I know um, a lot of us are aware of the work and the voice of a man named Brian Stevenson, who runs an organisation called Equal Justice Initiative. Despite the fact that violent crime rates haven't risen since the 1960s, the prison population has risen by 700%. One in three black men born in America today are expected to go to prison at some point in their lives, which has a massive array of knock-on effects across society. The stat goes up to 70% likelihood if high school isn't completed. This doesn't have anything to do with public safety. This is throwing people away for drug crimes. This is mandatory sentencing. This is racism and profiteering and pure evil. This is children themselves not expecting to get to the age of 21 without going to prison. This is elementary age children arriving at school with trauma disorders being treated immediately like criminals. This is here. This is in our city. And these problems, they just seem so big. And if we're not criminal lawyers who can help Brian Stevenson's, we just feel so incapable of just doing anything about them. What can I do to help? I know so many of us are asking this question now and we feel so powerless. So as well as what we do know to look to Jesus, Mr. Stevenson's first devastating call to us all is to get proximate. He says there is power in proximity, even if we don't have any answers about what we do when we'll get there, we just have to get close. We have to go, just like Jesus went, to the poverty, abuse and dysfunction. People of faith, this is our calling. And I'm sorry that Ed and I haven't led you better in it. It's always been on Bread's mission statement and we as a church have made some great starts and I know a number of you are doing fantastic things, things like the Homeless Pact and the stuff that we um, have done with Union Rescue Mission. But we haven't done enough and we haven't spoken of it enough, given as we're incapable of escaping here, that this is what Jesus comes to do and this is what Jesus tells us he wants from us. That we as a church must get close to the poor, the oppressed, the hungry and those who need shelter. It is the centrality of what it is to be his people. To be hopeful, to stand up when others sit down, to speak when others stay quiet, to have our spirits oriented to Jesus' central unavoidable, no way but this battle cry. It is mercy he desires. Mercy that has got nothing to do with looking down on others. This isn't us gazing down from our fortunate positions because we're just so good and kind. This is offering love, grace and faithfulness and hope to anyone within our reach because we know ourselves to be in need too. We know ourselves to be the recipients of grace and mercy. We know ourselves to not have it all together, to be reliant on the same mercy that we offer 
I know this is a hard talk to hear. I promise you I know it because this stuff has weighed so heavily on me this week. It has been impossible to give this talk without being confronted by all of the ways that I have not been living this way. These are hard truths to face. And let's make no mistake, Jesus' call to this life and his, and his kingdom is uncomfortable. Steadfast love is work. And for some of us, it's going to mean some changes to the way that we live and the way that we shop and the way that we speak and the way that we orientate our lives. It's painful to get close to people who need mercy because it requires that we feel their pain with them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God instead of burnt offerings. The second half of that verse that Jesus knew the Pharisees knew all too well includes a word for knowledge that is translated as something much more intimate than just knowledge. It's like carnal knowledge, like Adam's knowledge for his wife. It's the same word, as close as can be. God is pleading with Israel because he wants them, not their sacrifices. He wants their hearts, their minds, their bodies, all of them and all of us. He wants to bless us, to see us flourish, to see us enjoy and steward his creation. He wants us to love each other as well as him, to seek the good of our neighbours, of the widows, the orphans, the strangers, of the poor. This all ends and starts again at the cross, the place where justice and mercy meet, the place where justice died in our place where grace and love were poured out for us to receive and to pass on. The place where we discover that in our weakness, he is strong. But it all has to start with love. It never works. None of this stuff works when it feels like an obligation. It just becomes a burden. It's too much. It has to start with love. It has to start with the life-changing, head-lifting knowledge of how loved we are. So as um, Ben starts to play again now, why don't you just pray with me uh, that the Holy Spirit would come and meet you and speak to you about what he would have you know in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you come? Thank you that yours is never a voice that condemns, it's always one that sets us free. I pray for anyone that feels like they've been mourning, that they've been grieving, and that this is the start of something new for them. I pray that you would lift heads, that you would cast off all condemnation. Thank you that forgiveness is yours, that we start each day new. And would you come, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us about this love that you pour out, that you would have your church share this mercy, this steadfast love that you want us to share in this city. Come Holy Spirit. Jesus is you. 
Jesus is you So I lift my hands And I bring my song All of my days All of my rights All of my wrongs I Jesus, it is you. Who sees my brokenness and carries me when I am frail and weak? Jesus, it is you. Who tells the storm to rest when I am overwhelmed and cannot speak? Jesus, it is you. Who wears my guilt on his shoulders? Who holds my heart in his hands? My thoughts and fears hangs on the arms of Calvary. Jesus, it is you. Jesus, it is you. So I lift my hands and I bring my song. days, all of my rights, all of my wrongs, I offer my life here and beyond, to the one Jesus
Jesus it is you to the one thing true Jesus it is you prayer team is ready and waiting if you're watching this live and you'd like to get some uh, prayer ministry do join us on zoom now i know some of this stuff is really heavy um i think change is happening and change very often requires some painful stuff but we do believe we have real hope that the church in this country is going through a big thing and that some amazing stuff is going to come out of this we'd love to see you at the picnic week next week and we will be here but for now, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. We'll see you soon. Bye.